Good evening. Welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is uh, Kai Spiekermann and I am a professor of uh, political philosophy at the London School of Economics and uh, Political Science. Thank you all for joining us for the annual Brian Barry Memorial Lecture honoring the work of a political philosopher and for some of us, uh, former colleague, Brian Barry. Let me just say a few words about uh, Brian before introducing uh, our uh, speaker for tonight. Brian Barry was really a towering figure in 20th century political philosophy. Many people will remember him for his sharp tongue and his uh, strong opinions. So um, if you want to get a taste of that, why don't you uh, look up uh, Brian's review of uh, Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia, for example, and, and you will see you will see what I mean. But this is just one side of what Brian was about. I was fortunate um, um, at my uh, uh, at the time when I was a PhD student uh, to benefit from from Brian's advice uh, when uh, when I was at LSE. So as an emeritus, Brian spent a lot of time at, at our research seminars, and he dutifully uh, attended um, all the PhD presentations as well. And I mean, he really did not need to do that, and he was just there. And um, he was there, and he was incredibly generous with his time. He provided uh, extensive comments, and uh, often these comments were uh, really encouraging and helpful. Well, and sometimes not so much, uh, but that was, uh, that was very much um, how he was. And then afterwards, he would go to the pub with us, and he would discuss absolutely every topic under the sun. And uh, uh, because of that, we PhD students, we, we loved Brian, uh, but we also feared him a little bit. Uh, and again, that was, that was very much Brian, I think. Brian effortlessly bridged political philosophy, ethics, social and rational choice theory, as well as political science. He shaped political theory and philosophy in ways only a very select group of thinkers have done uh, since the 1950s. So it's only right that we um, uh, think about him tonight um, and that we have the annual Brian Berry Lecture. Let me now turn to our guest for today. For our annual Brian Berry Memorial Lecture, I'm very pleased to welcome Cheshire Calhoun to the LSE. At least, at least virtually to the LSE. So I'm very sorry that you can't be here in person for, for the obvious reasons. Cheshire is CLAS Trusty Professor of Philosophy and uh, Head of the Philosophy Faculty uh, at Arizona State University. She has recently been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her work stretches across the philosophical subdisciplines of normative ethics, moral psychology, philosophy of emotion, feminist philosophy, and gay and lesbian philosophy, including uh, sexual injustice. Her work touches upon questions related to the practices and lived experiences of morality. Recently, she has worked on the importance of living, of living in time for practices of moral evaluation. Today, she will be discussing some of her new research on the basic expectations of and stances towards responsible persons. The title of her talk is Responsible Persons Thinking About Resentment, Trust, and Hope in Everyday Life. For those Twitter users among us, um, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Responsible. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully, uh, technology permitting, also be made available as a podcast later on. As usual, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to Cheshire. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will uh, pose as many as possible to Cheshire. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni, so please do let us know. But now I am delighted to hand over to Professor Cheshire Calhoun. Cheshire, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Kai, and um, I'm very happy to be here um, and to be able to honor Brian uh, Barry. Uh, hopefully he would approve of what I'm about to say next. So let me share my screen. <clears throat> okay. 
So I hope you can take a second to look at these images. Hope your, your screen is large enough to see them. On the left-hand side, we have images of what I think of as accountability responsibility. On the right-hand side, are images connected with what I think of as taking responsibility. And at the bottom are slides um, that are designed to illustrate compliance responsibility. So that gives you a little preview. Okay, so the basic question I wanna take up today is what is a responsible person? And by that, I don't mean responsible person in the sense we sometimes have in mind when we say, who's responsible for that? Because when we assign responsibility to uh, an individual for um, <clears throat> a particular action or consequence, um, we already have in mind that they are a responsible person in a more basic sense. Um, namely, they are the kind of person who can be held um, responsible or excused from responsibility, uh, that they can act responsibly or irresponsibly, and that they're kind of the person who has responsibilities or who can take on responsibilities. So <clears throat> to be a responsibility, a responsible person in this sense I'm interested in exploring is to have a cross-temporal status and the standing capacities, dispositions, or other features that give you that status, the status of being a responsible person. Now, responsible person in the sense that I just outlined is what I take to be a default status in social life. So in our everyday interactions with people, many of whom are perfect strangers, we simply assume that they are responsible people. We don't first look for evidence that they are. And when individuals behave badly or disappointingly, we tend to take this um, as not by itself evidence that they're not responsible persons. They've simply failed to act in the ways that their being responsible persons enables them to act. This default status matters. It underpins our distinctively human forms of social life. So in his famous essay, Freedom and Resentment, Peter Strassen suggested that if we want to understand responsibility, we need to pay attention to the facts as we know them. I'm going to start with these facts about social life as we know it. We attach considerable importance to having a social life together. And social practices organize that life. <clears throat> these are practices that include hosting a dinner party, maintaining friendships, um, sharing the road and other public spaces with people, conveying information in educational settings or in everyday conversations, um, using libraries, being employed and employing others and businesses and so on. And norms emerging from those practices guide and coordinate people's actions, enabling social participants to anticipate what others will do. And social practices also enable us to realize things that we value, both individually and collectively. For example, driving safely from one place to another, or earning a livelihood, or securing the welfare of friends, or acquiring information. Oops. So what I want to suggest is that embedded in our social practices generally are three distinct default conceptions of a responsible person. So first, as capable of living up to normative expectations, what I'm unsurprisingly going to call accountability responsibility, Secondly, as in fact disposed to satisfy at least minimal normative expectations, and what for want of a better term, I'm just gonna call compliance responsibility. And finally, as capable of, and at least sometimes electing to take responsibility. And I'm gonna call these uh, taking responsibility. <laughs> okay, so, <clears throat> I'm offering these not as competing conceptions, but as jointly essential for capturing the complex ways that we think about and interact with responsible persons 
as well as capturing the centrality of resentment, trust, and hope in everyday social life. So let's start then on familiar territory with accountability responsibility. So the ba most basic conception and the most familiar to philosophers of a responsible person is one of being accountability responsible. <clears throat> responsible persons can be held accountable for their actions and engaged with in the diverse ways that we engage with responsible as opposed to non-responsible beings like cats and toddlers. Those diverse interactions include saliently expressing blame, remonstrating with, chastising, guilt tripping, punishing, accepting or refusing excuses, um, demanding apologies, requesting justifications for what was done, and so on. And on the more positive side, there's giving deserved praise, expressing a gentle gratitude for giving and expressing confidence or hope in good performance. Now, as Strassen understood it, accountability responsibility rests on the capacity to manifest goodwill in one's attitudes and actions. And more recently, many suggest that the basic capacity requisite for accountability responsibility is reasons responsiveness which plausibly includes a capacity to understand normative concepts, to detect normatively relevant considerations in particular situations, and to deliberate and govern one's actions on the basis of those normatively relevant considerations. Such a capacity might also include an emotional capacity for empathy, as David Shoemaker has suggested. Now, having the capacity or capacities of an accountability responsible person doesn't of course mean that one actually exercises those capacities. Individuals can be persistently indifferent to the normative considerations they're capable of understanding and capable of detecting were they minded to pay attention. They can also deliberately flout normative expectations behaving as though normative requirements apply only to others and not to themselves. I wrote part of this <laughs> during our last US president's behavior. Um, <clears throat> so in short, having the capacity that makes one account an accountability responsible person doesn't it actually entail that one does manifest goodwill or lives up to others' normative expectations. All right, so does the basic expectation of responsible persons as opposed to non-responsible beings is simply a normative one. That is, we think that people ought to manifest goodwill, fulfill normative expectations, show a basic regard or concern for other persons. And in continuing to have normative expectations about how others ought to act, we regard as responsible persons even those for whom we've lost all hope of good behavior and to whose bad action we've simply become resigned. The basic stance towards accountability responsible persons is one of being prepared in advance to resent, be angry with, indignant about their behavior that disappoints normative expectations and hallmark ways of engaging with responsible persons, as I suggested a moment ago, are those that express the negative reactive attitudes like resentment and anger. Um, <clears throat> and those engagements include things like criticizing, chastising, calling to account, and so on. There are also less punitive and less reactive ways of engaging with the accountable. We presume that they have the capacity to respond to reasons, and so we educate responsible persons about what those reasons are. We argue with them about whether particular actions are or are not obligatory, and we exhort them to do a better job at living up to normative expectations. And of course, because accountability responsible persons sometimes aren't responsible for particular actions, we ask for and sometimes excuse them. Now, you know, this brief account of accountability responsibility just is not philosophical news. 
But what tends to go unremarked is just how minimalist a conception of a responsible person this is. Having a capacity is consistent with not exercising it. And thus normative expectations about how others ought to behave are not predictive expectations about how they will behave. And this is to say that it's not any part of the conception of an accountability responsible person that they will have been well enough socialized into social norms to be the kind of person who can be counted on to at least behave with common decency and thus to not invite resentment. Now to see the minimalism of this conception, think about how much of your daily life within social practices proceeds on the assumption that you will not in fact need to press normative demands on other people or call on enforcement mechanisms or adopt the protective stance of being prepared to hold others to account. Instead, we simply assume that in sharing trains, sharing information, sharing employment and so on, our fellow participants will in fact behave minimally well. Think also about how very differently structured our social practices would be if our only assumption were that individuals were accountability responsible. So built only on the normative, but no predictive expectations of decent behavior, social practices would likely build in far more protective and punitive mechanisms than in fact they do. We would see a lot more surveillance, a lot more formal contracts. In short, unless a social practice is poorly functioning, we operate on a more robust conception of responsible persons as what I'm gonna call compliance responsible. Okay, so let's turn to compliance responsibility. To get a feel for this notion of a compliance responsible person, imagine that a friend asks you for a pet sitter recommendation. I get this a lot. <laughs> She tells you that she's had a series of unreliable pet sitters. They've been irresponsible, not following feeding restrict restrictions and doing things that put your pets at risk. You recommend art to her, assuring her that art is responsible and thus can be counted on to do a decent job. Now, in recommending art as a responsible person, your principal message is not that art has the capacity to be reasons responsive and to govern himself in light of those reasons, and thus that it will be appropriate to blame him should he do a bad job for you. Of course, art does have those capacities, but so did all the unreliable pet sitters, which was why your friend blamed them. In recommending Art as a responsible person, what you underscore is not his capacity, but his disposition to actually respond to normative expectations. And thus that your friend can have a predictive expectation about his pet sitting performance. He can be counted on. Right, now how should this conception of compliance responsibility be spelled out if what we're looking for is a default conception, right? Not a conception of people as having a virtue of responsibility. We want a default conception that's operative within minimally well-functioning social practices. So as I just said, it's surely not a conception of persons as having a virtue of responsibility because generally speaking, of course there's exceptions, we don't engage in social practices with others under the presumption that they have excellences of character that would make them especially dependable, conscientious, trustworthy, diligent, and so on. So the disposition to respond to normative expectations that defines this conception will need to be modest enough to capture a default presumption about social participants generally. So what I'm gonna suggest is this. The compliance responsible persons are minimally well-formed social agents. They know what the minimal normative expectations are in the various practices in which they participate. They're disposed to meet at least those minimal expectations. And because they're so disposed, they generally do live up to those minimal normal expectations. 
Now, being compliance responsible is not just a matter of being reliably compliant, even if reliability is part of compliance responsibility. And that's because people can be reliably compliant out of sheer fear of penalty. For example, of negative gossip or being fired, so on. Or out of sheer desire for various forms of self-interested rewards. Compliance responsibility differs from merely reliable compliant in what explains the reliability. So someone who's compliance responsible <clears throat> differs from merely reliably compliant people because they have acquired in the process of socialization what I'm going to call a normative map that is functionally effective in guiding action. And I use these terms normative map and functionally effective so as to avoid over-intellectualizing and rendering overly conscious the processes that are normally at work in compliance responsible people. The point of socializing children and adults into norm-governed practice, sorry, into norm-governed practices is to obviate practitioners' need to reflectively accept or endorse those norms and to deliberate consciously on their basis. <clears throat> A normatively well-formed individual simply does without need for reflection or deliberation the to be done so library patrons, for example, don't have to think about the norms that prohibit tearing pages out of books or shouting in the library or spitting in the stacks. They've acquired often tacitly and unconsciously a normative map for library behavior that's functionally effective in guiding their library behavior. Now, having internalized a normative map for various social practices, the compliance responsible person has a self-regulating motivational structure. <clears throat> Feeling the force of the just to be done, she feels obliged to do it. And if she doesn't do it, she tends to feel guilt, remorse, embarrassment, or shame. Feeling the force of the to be done, she's also likely to take seriously the fact that others are counting on her to comply with the norms of the social practice. So in predictably expecting my pet sitters to feed my pets, I presume that my counting on them <clears throat> guides their actions. All right, so in sum, the basic expectation of compliance responsible persons is a normative cum predictive expectation of compliance with minimal social norms is premised on the assumption that the facts that something is normatively expected and that others are counting on them are functionally effective in guiding action. We expect that our fellow social participants not only ought to do things like return their library books, but they will do those things, even once the library has eliminated fees for late returns. Now, turning to the basic stance, recall that the basic stance toward accountability responsible persons is preparedness in advance to react resentfully to normative failures. By contrast, the basic stance towards compliance responsible persons is a prospective trust that they will not, in fact, disappoint our minimal normative expectations. <clears throat> Recall also that the basic ways of interacting with the accountable largely involve doing something to hold them to account, things like blaming, punishing, refusing excuses, and so on. But the basic ways of interacting with the compliance responsible is to do nothing. More precisely, when appropriately treats as compliance responsible by not checking up on them, not reminding them, what was promised, not doing self-protective protective things like insisting on contracts or installing surveillance cameras and not avoiding them for fear of what they might do. These not doings constitute what Strassen called our responsibility practices, although he did not recognize these particular ones. They are responsibility practices specific to compliance responsible persons. 
Now, of course, you're probably thinking that, well, shopkeepers do install security cameras, airports search bags and persons, tourists wear money belts, women avoid walking alone at night, black persons avoid police interaction, um, employers do background checks, internet sellers ask for CVV numbers, and so on. Protecting oneself against actual or potential norm violation is often quite reasonable. But what I want to note is that a default presumption that fellow social participants are compliance responsible is perfectly compatible with thinking that some participants aren't. So think back to accountability responsibility. A default presumption that social participants are accountability responsible is also perfectly compatible with thinking that some of them aren't. They might be psychopaths or they might be seriously mentally ill. Now I wanna make two observations about the importance of compliance responsibility. <clears throat> First, where a default presumption of compliance responsibility is absent, social practices will not be even minimally decent. To see this, imagine a social world where pet sitters cannot be counted on to actually feed the pets and their employers cannot be counted on to actually pay them. Now to have a pet sitting practice under these conditions, there will have to be coercive measures put in place. So pet sitters and their employers might sign a formal contract specifying the, center's, the sitter's duties and payment and the penalties to both parties for non-fulfillment. Pet owners might install surveillance cameras to determine whether the terms of the contract have been fulfilled. And pet sitters might do background checks about the payment reliability and the economic finances of their employers. The larger the number of social practices in which no default presumption of compliance responsibility operates, the more we might be inclined to say that social life has simply broken down. In short, it would not be possible to have anything resembling the social life characteristic of well-run societies, absent a default presumption that people are compliance responsible. The second observation I want to make about the importance of this notion of uh, responsible persons <clears throat> is this. Those practices of holding people responsible, like blaming and punishing them, can do the work that they're supposed to do only if responsible persons are presumed to be robustly susceptible to self-reactive attitudes like guilt and remorse. We bother to express resentment, to make appeals, to threaten penalties, to exhort to better future performance precisely because we think all of these things will get uptake. And indeed, punitive practices are largely justified by the fact that they generally do improve agency. But our accountability responsibility practices can't do the work of improving normative performance absent uptake of our demands and appeals. However, robust susceptibility to self-reactive attitudes and uptake of expressed blame is a feature of being a compliance responsible person. And what this means is that we can expect uptake of our efforts to hold accountable only if they are addressed to compliance responsible persons who are robustly susceptible to self-regulating reactive attitudes. Okay, I'm now gonna to turn to the last one, <clears throat> responsibility taking. So the two conceptions of responsible persons developed so far focus on person's capacity and disposition to meet normative expectations, that is to do what they're obligated to do. But I don't think this is all there is to our default conception of a responsible person. So fundamental to our social life is regarding social participants as having the capacity to take responsibility. And by that, I mean specifically that we regard each other and also ourselves as having the capacity to elect or take the initiative 
to do good things, including some required things that could be omitted without blame. Now, taking responsibility can be done in a variety of ways. So uh, this notion of taking responsibility is going to cover a fairly wide terrain. But here are ways in which one can do that. First of all, one can take it upon oneself to extend one's own accountability or liability in ways that aren't in fact required, but are nevertheless fitting. So for example, by apologizing for unwittingly making an offensive or hurtful remark, or by offering to pay for a store item that one has accidentally broken, or by making up for the costs that others connected with you have imposed on others, for example, the costs your child's or your employee's behavior that you aren't strictly speaking required to um, make up for. <clears throat> a different way of extending one's accountability is to, is to volunteer to take on a responsibility, that's to take on an obligation. Promising, for example, to see to it that the new pet gets walked or that a particular student gets mentored or that a new program gets implemented. Even without taking on a new obligation or responsibility, <clears throat> one can take responsibility for promoting valuable ends that one is not obligated to promote. For example, by picking up other people's litter while you're out hiking, or by turning off somebody's car lights in the parking lot that they've accidentally left on. In addition, where one has already been assigned responsibility for looking out out after something, you can fulfill that responsibility in more diligent, time-consuming, creative, or taxing ways than is minimally required. So for example, a teacher who teaches online can take webinars in improving online teaching or can try to implement the very latest in pedagogical techniques, even though these aren't strictly required for the job. Now, even with respect to living up to normative requirements, there are options for additionally taking responsibility. So you can take steps that exceed any reasonable standards of due care to ensure that you in fact fulfill your obligations by, for example, taking unusually careful steps to ensure that you have the resources on hand for filling, fulfilling your obligations or by having, as I do, enough post-it notes around your house to remind you of what the obligations are you need to fulfill and when to do them. <clears throat> Furthermore, you can take responsibility for living up to normative expectations, even when not doing so, though blameworthy, would be unlikely to provoke resentment and blame. So there can be a great deal of normative social drift, right? I think of sort of norms of courtesy, many of which have gone out of fashion, right? In which you wouldn't be blamed for not living up to, and yet you can take responsibility for hewing to those normative expectations. You can also take responsibility for fessing up to and apologizing for misbehavior that had you not remarked on it, no one would have noticed and no one would have blamed you for. Finally, and importantly for social progress, one can take responsibility for being the one who calls out bad behavior, for challenging objectionable social norms or for taking the lead in establishing new and improved social norms. Now, obviously it's no part of our default conception of, of social participants as responsible persons, that they will take responsibility in any of these ways, at least not in any systematic kind of way, and certainly not on all possible occasions. Nevertheless, it seems to be that our basic expect, normative expectation or expectation of responsibility takers is a normative predictive expectation of social participants that they will elect to take responsibility on at least some occasions. Indeed, absent such a default expectation, it would be hard to make sense 
of social practices that depend on, on responsibility taking. So think about charitable organizations, nonprofits generally, social movements, political action committees. These all ask for volunteers and for um, donations. And they rely on the presumption that at least some people will normally respond to those appeals. Restorative justice programs rely on guilty parties actively taking responsibility. And everyday asking for everyday favors, like would you watch my bag, is a part of ordinary routines of social life. Finally, at least some responsibility practices, namely those governing expressions of appreciation and gratitude, respond to responsibility having been taken. So we send thank you notes. We award prizes for service. We institute, institute at least in the US, a huge number of appreciation days, weeks, and months, such as Teacher Appreciation Week or Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, the more basic reason for thinking that such a default conception of responsible persons is embedded in our social practices has to do with the fact that social practices arise because there are things that we value, that is, goods that can be realized. The norms governing social practices are designed to regulate participants' behavior so that those underlying goods are, in fact, realized or promoted. So consider the huge array of social practices oriented around the goods of friendship, family life, health, safety, transmission of knowledge, preservation of the environment, and sociability. If we assume that social participants have the capacity and disposition to conform to norms of social practices, we surely equally assume that they're capable of appreciating the various goods that social practices serve and the value of promoting them. And thus we assume that they have reasons for electing to adopt at least some of these goods as their own ends. Thus the default stance toward social participants regarded as having the capacity for responsibility taking is hopefulness. It's a hope that they will have adopted more than self-serving ends. It's a hope that when we call on them to volunteer, to donate, to join social movements, they will have adopted or be willing to adopt the end that gives them reason to elect to take responsibility. It's a hope that in fulfilling their assigned responsibilities, they will value the goods served by those responsibilities enough to do more than is minimally required. It's a hope that they will care enough about the obligatory to take responsibility for exceeding reasonable standards of due care or to hew to social norms in the face of social drift or to fess up to failures that would have gone undetected. Okay, so now let me conclude. My question has been, what is a responsible person? And my strategy in answering this was to look for the default conception of a responsible person that is embedded in our social practices generally. I've suggested that there are in fact three distinct conceptions. And for each, there's a distinctive basic expectation stance toward in way of interacting with responsible persons. Responsible persons have first the capacity to live up to normative expectations. Second, the disposition to conform to minimal social norms. And third, the capacity and sometimes disposition to take responsibility and elect to do what they could avoid without blame. Now, my hope is that this more complex way of thinking about responsible persons is gonna be useful. So in particular, I hope it will be useful in figuring out what infrastructure of responsibility best supports being accountability responsible, being compliance responsible, and being responsibility takers. I also hope it will be useful in assessing the health of our social practices. So I think something has gone wrong, for example, in a social world where trust in norm compliance is missing. And something has gone equally wrong in a social world where there is little realistic hope that people will take responsibility and do more than they are strictly obligated to do. Okay, so thank you.
I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Shesha, for this um, <clears throat> inspiring and, and insightful talk. Um, we will now um, open the floor to questions from the audience. Uh, please type, uh, preferably, uh, short questions into the Q&A box, and we will try to answer as many as possible. Uh, and please, if possible, include your name and affiliation. And now I have to find out where my chat box has gone. Um, here we... Ah, okay. So the first question comes from uh, from um, uh, Leo Metier, LSE political theory student. Um, why is the disposition to fulfill norms, even when they are frequently violated, part of responsibility taking rather than compliance responsibility? It seems that responsibility taking focuses on supererogation, but that even non-supererogatory norms can be frequently violated. Okay, so let me read this again. You know, the Should point of difficulty with this way of doing things is I can't ask the audience members. Could you explain that a little more? Okay, so um, why is the disposition to fulfill norms even when they're frequently violated part of responsibility taking? Um, oh, I see. So you're thinking about these cases where they are, where they're a social drift, right? So. You know, I was recently in a grocery store and the clerks here, you know, always have to ask the patrons, you know, how are you? <laughs> you know, and I've gotten in the habit of asking back and, and how are you? And, and sometimes I get these profuse thanks because the norms of common courtesy, uh, at least with respect to store clerks uh, are simply gone. All right, so the question here is, um, why not think that in asking, and how are you, I'm just being compliance responsible instead of responsibly, instead of taking responsible? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so it, it, this is, I mean, this is why I put it in the responsibility taking part. So I think of the compliance responsible as people who comply with the minimal normative expectations. You know, and where social drift has occurred, what that means is that what once were minimal normative expectations have ceased to really have the status of being minimal normative expectations, right? So that you can get away with not complying with those norms. So that's why I put it there. Um, there was another, was there another part of this Oh, responsibility taking focuses on super irrigation. I'm, I'm really glad you asked this. So <clears throat> I actually think that responsibility taking isn't all about super irrigation unless we have a really expansive view of super irrigation, which is absolutely fine by me. But, you know, when people talk about super derogatory acts, they you know, often have in mind, you know, acts of beneficence right, that aren't required, you know, rescuing people and so on. So when I think about my colleagues who do a really good job at the things that they're responsible for, you know, I have a colleague who um, is director of graduate studies and he does a phenomenal job. It's way more than the minimal expectations. Now, I, you know, you can call this super erogatory but it's really, you know, a form of fulfilling a kind of imperfect duty, right? He is obligated to do the job of directing graduate studies. He just elects to do more than is actually required. So I hesitate to equate um, responsibility taking um, with the, totally with the super erogatory. Again, you know, the example of taking um, extraordinary measures to exercise due care and fulfilling obligations. I mean, there's a sense in which that is supererogatory, right? It exceeds um, reasonable standards of due care, but there's another sense in which it's very tightly connected to fulfilling obligations. It's not like philosophers normal examples of supererogation. So thank you, it's too good. 
Great, thank you. Let's go to the next question from uh, Susan Wolf, a social historian. Where does the sociopathic personality fit into the idea of a responsible person? How are they able to appear responsible while behaving otherwise? Yeah. All right, so the first thing is, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of literature on psychopaths, but I, you know, I'm just gonna follow what seems to be the standard line, which is that psychopaths are not accountable, right? That there are some respects in which they're lacking the very basic capacities for accountability. So let me just go with that. Um, now, oh, so, so here's a sort of interesting question, which is how, how does a psychopath manage to appear as though they understand and comply with social norms and have all those capacities, even when in fact they do not. Now the compliance responsible part is easier to handle. So people can be compliance responsible for lots of different reasons, sorry. People can comply with social norms for lots of different reasons. And psychopaths can have their own self-interested reasons for complying with social norms, it doesn't automatically make them a compliance responsible person, right? And I think that can be true of a lot of people who just really, they don't care about social norms, but they get it, that they will get ahead in the world, they will get what they want, they can manipulate people if they give the appearance of being a compliance responsible person. I hope that's a su sufficient answer for you. Let's take this one for now and let's move on to the next question. And that's from uh, Julia Coste, uh, one of our um, uh, doctoral students at LSE. She asks, where does the concept of trust fit into your framework of responsibility? Is your notion of hope synonymous, synonymous to trust? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> um, so... Where's the concept of trust? So I take it that what I, what I was suggesting was that <clears throat> trust is the basic attitude that we have towards people who we presume are compliance responsible, right? And the trust is exhibited by not checking up on people, by not you know, reminding them of what they have to do and, and so on. So, um, hope is different, right? So the, the trust is predicated on the assumption, uh, on a kind of predictive expectation, right? The people will in fact, in general, live up to minimal normative expectations. Now hope is warranted when we think it's possible, but you know, of indeterminate likelihood that people will do good things. So I take it that hopefulness is really, the stance that we have not towards the compliance responsible. We don't just hope that they're going to live up to minimal normative expectations. We presume that they will normally. Um, but for responsibility taking, right? Taking responsibility really is a function of, to a large extent, people adopting particular ends as their own, right? So if you adopt the end of promoting education as your own, then you acquire a reason to do more than what's minimally required in your job as an educator, right? But we, we can't count on, and we certainly would be unreasonable to presume that people would adopt every single valuable thing as their personal end. They simply would not have time <laughs> to see to it that those ends are taken care of. And thus, you know, the best we can do is to simply hope that when we call on people to volunteer or to support things that, you know, they will have, or they will be willing to adopt the relevant personal ends and, and to, to help out. Is that okay? Great, thank you. Next this question. This is hard to do without seeing anybody. <laughs> This is, this is the slight drawback of the webinar, but uh, uh, the good thing is we get a lot of questions in, which is sometimes hard in other settings. 
So uh, the next question is from uh, Gianni Sara, who is a KCL grad student. And uh, um, he's asking, I was wondering how this notion of responsibility interacts with integrity. Interacts with integrity. Hmm. I haven't thought... Uh, um about this, I, I think there's no really tight connections and maybe I can explain why. So <clears throat> my focus has been on um, the ways we think about people within social practices in which that there are already established norms expectations. Now, there's no guarantee that norms will have, uh, will be acceptable, right? So we, you know, so the, the norms of police practice in the U.S. have come under a lot of criticism, right? So <clears throat> I'm not, what I've said doesn't provide us with a way immediately of criticizing social norms. Um, so there's no strong fit between being say compliance responsible and being a person of integrity who has thought about critically reflected on what would be good ways of interacting with people and is willing to you know, stand up for those. Now that one interaction or connection would be with responsibility taking, right? So people of integrity sometimes say, listen, you know, I'm not complying with this social norm. I think it's a really bad one. Um, and here's my reasons for criticizing it, you know, and I'm going to take responsibility for doing something to try to alter these social practices so that they have more acceptable norms. So it, it could very well be that responsibility taking is sort of motivated or strongly connected with personality or a character trait of integrity. Yeah. Great. Let's move to uh, Jan Candiali, who is a fellow in the government department at LSE. And he asks, uh, you see responsibility taking as a positive phenomena, but isn't it also problematic when people take on excessive responsibilities yeah. or responsibilities they aren't suited to? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I have a separate paper on that if you want to read about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have a paper on responsibilities and taking on responsibilities. And you're absolutely right. So um, <clears throat> while... All I wanted to highlight was just that we have this sort of default presumption that the people we interact with are capable and sometimes disposed to take on responsibilities. Now, it, it, given that capacity and disposition, it is absolutely true that people can take on responsibilities in the wrong ways. I mean, they can be medicine. They can, as you suggested, take on responsibilities that they are not equipped to um, fulfill and so on. Um, so I do think it's an interesting, you know, ethical question about how do we take on responsibilities well. But again, as, as in the case of my response to the last um, uh, question, my interest here is not in um, doing any kind of evaluative assessment. I'm just trying to get at the, the basic conception of a responsible person. Yeah, there's a lot more to be said. But then, you know, just add more, I want to add one more thing about this. I mean, this is why I think it's so helpful to have this complex conception of a responsible person, because it enables us to think in a much broader and complicated way about what are the sort of ethics of being a responsible person. And, and in your case, your question, we want to ask, well, what's the sort of ethics of taking responsibility? So, okay, guys. Huh. Here's another question for you. This is from uh, Lea Ippi, who is a professor of political philosophy in the Department of Government at LSE. So this is a slightly longer one. Um, I hope you also have it in front of you. I can see how the default framework applies to individuals in their personal interactions, but I'm not sure about office holders. So politicians, for example. It looks like in the case of office holders, compliance responsibility cannot be reduced to refraining from checks but actively engaging in them. For example, in the form of holding elections through which one can remove people from office if necessary. Does this mean compliance responsibility takes a different form when applied to office holders? 
gosh, this is where I really wish I could talk to the audience. Um, I'm not sure what, oh, I see. So it's, it's it, where'd it go? So compliance responsibility cannot be reduced to refraining from checks. Uh, okay, so I take it that um, what Lee has in mind is, is my say, suggesting that the way of interacting with compliance responsible people is to sort of let them be, right? To not check up on them. Um, but the suggestion here is that in office holders, people who are our office holders, we really do want to check up on them. We really do want to assess their compliance. So <clears throat> let me try this as an answer. Uh, yeah, I said at the beginning that these are not three competing conceptions of responsible persons, right? But when we interact in everyday life, you know, we've got all three conceptions normally at work. So in the case of office holders, while we do presume <laughs> that they are going to comply with minimal normative expectations, you know, I think you're probably right that um, we are much more cautious about that presumption that they will comply because a lot is at stake. And so we um, treat them in ways that are um, more focused on holding them to account. Um, you know, let me say one more thing about political office holders and, and some other kinds of office holders. Um, there can be certain roles in which we've gotten to the point where the minimal normative expectations are really, really minimal, <laughs> right? And so um, it's important to us to ensure that they are exceeding that really low bar for minimal normative expectations so that they can perform their job well. I don't know how helpful that is, but that would be my initial thought. Great, thank you. Let me try to squeeze in one final question. That's from Ruth Week. How do you inspire people to become responsibility takers in a time of COVID-19 uh, where this is particularly important? Oh, oh. like wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mask case is really interesting because what we're aiming for is not just that people be responsibility takers, but that they change their way of thinking and now come to think of wearing masks as a minimal normative expectation. <clears throat> So th 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 this is not going to be a helpful response, but this is what I did to take responsibility. So I ordered some pink paint and I painted the back window of my car with a sign that said masks are our friends. All right. Now, I, I, that probably wasn't really inspiring. I also made a lot of masks that were very pretty, which I hope would inspire people to think that this was, you know, one could have haute couture <laughs> and wear a mask. I mean, these are just sort of silly things, but, you know, they are ways of taking responsibility for changing our social norms. Your question, however, really isn't about changing social norms. It's just getting people to see that they need to take responsibility for others' welfare by wearing a mask <clears throat> in ways that they don't actually recognize. And then I think we treat them as accountability responsible persons, right? So you can blame them, but part of treating people as accountability responsible persons is treating them as responsive to reasons. So you just have to keep hammering in the reasons 
for why it is so critical to wear a mask and what the whole point of wearing a mask is. I hope that responds to in some way what you were saying. It's interesting. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It is already, unfortunately, uh, time to wrap up. So uh, let me just say it's been a great pleasure um, to um, to have you, well, at least virtually at LSE and uh, to listen to your talk. And also, um, it's great that you so patiently answered answered our questions today. Uh, so, so thank you. We are incredibly grateful. Um, this is it then for uh, this event at LSE today. Um, and uh, I've been warned that the end of these events is usually quite abrupt and, and so it will be. So all that remains to say now is to thank you all for joining. Thank you uh, for attending. Thank you for your questions. And uh, we hope to see you at, uh, at LSE again very soon. Have a good evening. Thanks and bye-bye.